Tonight I want to share some things with you about a message that's really been on my heart for a number of years. Most of us, especially those of us that grew up in a church or went to Sunday school, when we think of Easter, we're pretty well um, familiar with parts of the story at least. The empty tomb for sure, the cross for sure. We're also pretty familiar with the story of in the Garden of Gethsemane. I know I was. And I know as a young person, one of the things that caught my attention in that story was when Jesus, it says he sweat great drops of blood. Wow. I was always amazed by that. I didn't think too much beyond the what. He was sweating great drops of blood. I really didn't think about the why so much. Then a few years ago, Cindy and I were invited by a young couple to come down to Alabama and do their wedding ceremony. And the place that they were staring at was a ministry acreage, had a home and a chapel. And they were staying in this home and the owner of this place was Dr. Sandy Kirk. And while we were there, as we were visiting with Dr. Kirk, I discovered that she'd written a number of books and she gave me some of her books to take home and read. And the first book of hers that I read was Undone by the Revelation of the Lamb. It changed the way I thought about what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. It helped me to maybe understand the why. Why was Jesus suffering agonizing so much. And that's what I want to talk about. The title of my message tonight is To Drink of the Father's Cup. To Drink of the Father's Cup. I want to read from the Gospel of Matthew. You can find parts of this story in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. But I'm going to read from Matthew tonight. In Matthew 26, verse 36, it says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. When it says he went with them, they had just finished the Passover meal. And they went to Gethsemane and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father... If it is possible, may the cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father! If it is not possible for this cup to be taken from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. 
And I want to read one additional verse from the Gospel of John. John mentions this point after Peter took out his sword and cut off a soldier's ear. And he says to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The cup. In the Gospel of Matthew, three different times, Jesus goes and prays about this cup. Praying, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Remove this cup. But if not, not my will, but your will be done. Before I come back to this cup, I want to go back, way back in time. Actually, I want to go back to before the foundation of the world. That's how far back I want to go. When the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that we refer to as the Trinity, they had been together for eternity, eternity past, and will be together for eternity future. But it appears, and I want to show us from Scripture, that there was a covenant made. Many call it an eternal covenant between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. I want to read some scriptures from the New Testament that I believe show us this covenant. In Hebrews 13, it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, it says, No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God and his plan that was previously hidden even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. Let that think sink in for just a moment. They ratified an eternal covenant, an eternal covenant before the foundations of the world between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. Something clearly took place before the world began. Two more scriptures from the New Testament. First Peter 1, 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life that you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And in 2 Timothy 1.9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Once again, look at these words. Before the foundation of the world, he was foreknown. Granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. When you put that all together, there is this, this meeting that took place between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we, I believe, see clear, clear examples of it or clear references of it when we look at these scriptures in the New Testament. I want to read to you something Jonathan Edwards spoke in regard to this in one of his sermons. He said, Some things were done before the world was created. Yes, even from eternity. The persons of the Trinity were, as it were, confederated in a design and a covenant of redemption. In this covenant, the Father had appointed the Son 
and the Son had undertaken the work, and all things to be accomplished were stipulated and agreed upon. Jonathan Edwards makes it sound like there was this business transaction almost that was taking place. And when we look at it, in the three in agreement, it appears to me that the Father planned and sent Jesus. Jesus agrees to be sent, and he carries out the plan. And the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ, sealing us unto salvation, an eternal covenant before the foundations of the world. Let's return to the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. Return to this scene where Jesus is in such agony. I want to just pick out parts of some scriptures from Matthew, Mark, and Luke just to emphasize and think about what Jesus was going through. In Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 26, 38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. This is our Savior. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, all God, all man. And he is declaring that his soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Emotional agony of our Lord and Savior. In Luke 22, verse 44, it says, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Something was so troubling his soul that it says, in agony, in agony of soul, such agony, something actually happened to his physical body that he sweat great drops of blood. He was under such stress, such strain, such agony that capillaries beneath his skin ruptured and the blood seeped out through his pores like sweat, coagulating and falling to the ground. This is the kind of agony Jesus was in. And in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, it says these words in verse 34. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And he cried out, Abba, Father, or Father, Father, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will. The agony that Jesus was enduring. He's overwhelmed. He's feeling overwhelmed. And he cries out with emphasis, Father, Father. He even reminds the Father that with God, all things are possible. And he says, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But again, nevertheless, your will, not my will, be done. My question is, and this is the why for the what that Jesus was in such agony. Why was he in such agony? I believe as we look at this, a significant part at the very least of his agony had to do with the cup. The cup. What was in this cup that Jesus was so filled with agony and overwhelmed of soul that he actually was literally sweating drops of blood? What was it that could make him so moved? 
what was in the cup that would cause him to pray three times to the Father? If it were possible, remove this cup. Now, many people suppose that what's in the cup is just the suffering in the general sense that Jesus was about to endure. Frankly, I used to think that way. I used to think the suffering that he was about to endure would be more than enough suffering to cause him to have this kind of agony. But I think I was wrong. Was it the Roman scourging, the beating that he took that was given in this agony? Did he know that was coming? Of course. Was it the fear of the crown of thorns that they were going to force onto his skull and cause him to bleed from his scalp? Was it the spikes that they were going to drive into his hands and his feet that were causing him to have this agony? Was it the public shame and humiliation and embarrassment he was going to endure through this whole process of this phony trial and all this abuse? Was it the dread of bearing all of humankind's sin becoming a curse on our behalf? Was it the rupture of his heart? Was it the spear in his side? Was it the thought of this cold tomb that he was going to be laying in? I don't think any of those things were what he was thinking about that were causing all this agony. If we look at history, we know that there have been many people have died as martyrs for Jesus Christ. And many of them throughout history have been nailed to a cross and crucified. There has been many who have laid their heads on the chopping block and been decapitated for faith in declaring Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Would Jesus have been any less brave? Would he have had any less confidence in the Father than those people? Absolutely not. So what was it about the cup? It's a given that all that I mentioned already was horrifying enough. I'd hate to know that that would be what was coming my way and how I would respond. But I think there was something worse and I think the answer is when we look at Jesus' prayer. There is something about this cup. There is something in this cup. This cup represents something horrifying to Jesus. So I believe it's the contents of the cup. And I want us to look at a few examples in the Old Testament. And there are numerous examples in the Old Testament where the cup is talked about metaphorically. It's a metaphor representing something. And when it's used in the Old Testament, many, many places, it's used as a metaphor for God's punishment upon human sin. In Exodus 23, verse 23, the cup is called the cup of horrors and desolation. In Psalm 75, verse 8, For the Lord holds a cup in His hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices, and He pours out the wine in judgment. And all the wicked must drink it draining it to the dregs. Take in those words for just a moment. A cup of horror and a cup of desolation. The judgment of God in this cup. Full of foaming wine and He pours out the wine in judgment. The judgment of God against human sin throughout the history of the Jewish people. The cup is a metaphor. In Isaiah, or excuse me, in Jeremiah 25 verse 15, 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me as Jeremiah the prophet is speaking. He says, Take from my hand this cup filled to the brim with my anger and make all the nations to whom I send you drink from it. In Isaiah 51, verse 17, Isaiah the prophet is speaking. He says, Rouse yourself. Rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of His anger, the chalice of reeling. You have drained to the dregs. Again, take in the power of those words. This cup in the Old Testament, a metaphor, a picture for a cup of His anger towards sin, His people sinning against God. The cup of His anger, the chalice of reeling. I believe this is what was in the cup, the Father's cup, that Jesus was praying about. I want to quote Jonathan Edwards again from one of his famous sermons called Christ's Agony. Jonathan Edwards wrote, Jesus was brought to the mouth of the furnace so that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat. When he had a full sight of the wrath of God, he must suffer. The sight was overwhelming to him. He made his soul exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath and he was not prepared. It was not proper that he should plunge himself in blindfolded by not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, that he might know what was in the cup, God brought the cup that he was to drink and set it down before him that he might have a full view of it and see what it was before he took and drank it. I believe Jesus looked into this cup. I believe the Father was revealing to him, showing to him, so he with full knowledge of what he was going to have to endure would still willingly go and suffer this death and take the wrath of God for all of humankind's sins on himself. I don't believe that the cup represented physical death or physical pain. I believe it represented the Father's judgment of sin. The furnace, as Jonathan Edwards calls it, the eternal wrath and judgment of God. When we read about hell in the Scriptures, that is what all mankind deserved for sin. And Jesus took it all for all mankind, for all time. He took the condensed eternal wrath of God on Himself. I believe it is this view of the cup that caused this agony in His soul. The blazing fury of hell in a cup. And I truly believe that Jesus being all man as well as all God, but as all man, He needed to know what was in the cup. He needed to know so he would go of his own free will aware of what was coming. So the next question I have is why would he do it? Why would he do it? The simple answer, an obvious answer, is he did it out of obedience to the Father. He did it to fulfill the covenant that was made before time began as we know it. That eternal covenant that he had 
agreed to with the Father. He knew he must fill it. But I think it's more than that. And, and Dr. Kirk, in her book, Undone by the Revelation of the Lamb, wrote these words. You see, he looked into the furnace of hell and he saw you and me. He saw you and me enduring the punishment we deserved for our sin. And he threw himself in front of the Father's eternal wrath to save us. What a picture those words present to us. We are the ones that sinned. We are the ones that deserve the punishment. But he took it instead. This is what theologians, there's a word for it, it's called the propitiation. A sacrifice to avert wrath. Propitiation. A word that we don't hear much, use much. But in the biblical sense, in the sense that we see it used, meaning Jesus was our propitiation. He was our sacrifice that averted the wrath of God from us unto himself. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, listen to what it says. My little children, that's you and me. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Just think. Try to imagine as best we can all the punishment for all the sin from mankind. John Piper wrote these words in regards to this. He said, God sent His Son to be the wrath-absorbing propitiation for us. As our substitute, Jesus does not just cancel the wrath, He absorbs it and it diverts it from us to himself. He didn't just jump in and make it go away. He had to take it to meet the justice of the Father. God's innocent Son would drink down the cup, the fullness of the cup, taking on the wrath of the Father, the judgment of the Father against all sin, taking my punishment, your punishment for sin. That's what Good Friday is all about. All parties, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit would have had to agree to this covenant. I believe Jesus knew exactly what was coming. Why did He drink the cup? I believe He drank the cup because there was something stronger than the fear of what He was going to endure. And I believe that was the love that He has for us as His church, as His bride. He loved us so much. Love compelled Him to drink the cup and go to the cross. John in his Gospel in chapter 15 writes these words, As the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and I remain in His love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. 
My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for every single one of us. Every single one of us. And in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2 says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at those words. Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy that was set before him? His joy was his bride, the church. It was you and me. It's because of that joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and willingly went to it. As we gather together on Good Friday, my prayer is that we would have a greater comprehension, a greater understanding of what Jesus did for on the cross. It's everything. Our sins are forgiven. We can walk holy and righteous before God. We can have an intimate relationship with Him once again because He died for us. Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus that they might know the the length, the depth, the width of the Father's love. It helps me to understand in greater ways what was taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane. What it was that caused Jesus such agony. The cup. The punishment for all of my sin, all of your sin, past, present, and future was taken by Him as our substitute. And it's available to all. If you're happening to be hearing these words tonight and you have never accepted what Jesus Christ did for you on that cross, never made a personal commitment to Jesus, you need to do that. That's the only way that you can truly know the love of Christ. To confess your sin and your need of a Savior. To acknowledge Jesus the Son of God is that sacrifice, our Savior. And accept the gift that cost Him so much that's offered freely by grace and we receive it by faith. My prayer tonight is that would be true for every one of us.